Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people currently working in international schools, and we talk about life in their current country, and then we dive into some specific topics. The podcast is sponsored by Apps Events. We're a Google for Education partner and made up of former educators, all experts in helping schools integrate Google into their schools and classrooms. All training is customized for every school to make sure it has lasting impact. We're also experts on online virtual Google training, and we can deliver all our certification bootcamps and training completely online to schools. We have teams in Europe and the Middle East, Asia and the US, and we can help you wherever you are. Check it out over at appsevents.com. We're also delighted to say we're now an ISTE partner and we're delivering the ISTE Certified Educator worldwide with our subsidiary AE Learning. ISTE certification is a pedagogy-focused, vendor-neutral, professional certification aimed at educators wishing to transform their edtech practice. We run two-day certification boot camps which are amazing fun, great networking and will give you a huge boost both to your career and for your school. Get all the info at aelearninglab.com. Finally, the podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People ask us what Chromebooks and Windows laptops we recommend for schools, and after literally trying them all, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more information, please just leave your email at gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get straight back to you. We go to Acer HQ in Taiwan every year to be part of product discussions, and they are genuinely the best thought out, cost-effective, and durable devices out there. And now, on to the interview. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm talking to Dan Pardy, who works in Qatar, 21st Century Learning Coordinator. We're going to talk a bit better about that, what that is. Um, I've known Dan for a while. He's presented at quite a few of uh, our events. So yeah, definitely had quite a fairly long relationship. So Dan's lived in a few places and it'd be great to talk about Qatar and, and your background. So welcome, Dan. Hey, Dan. How's it, how's it going? Yeah, good, good. Um, we were just talking before you're in England, back in England at the moment. Your school year has already ended, hasn't it? So you, you're actually on your, on, um, well, yeah, I think you're technically still working, aren't you right now, but you're working from England. Yeah, yeah, I'm still working. Um, our school's gone on uh, on summer vacation. Uh, we're quite fortu- fortunate where the calendar was already planned for a May twenty first break um, for this for the start of Eid, which is the Islamic holiday in Qatar. Yeah, cool. Well, I want to talk about your background because it's interesting because um, you know we both like music, and you actually started off as a musician, and and you still even do some work. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm curious to find out if you actually do some, you know, actually. Commercial work of it's just for fun, but but I know that that was how you started as a musician. Yeah, yeah, I, I started as a musician when I was yeah, I was playing as a musician when I was in, in my teens in different bands, and I went to, to university to study music because I was just really passionate about music. And as I was going through university, um, I started coaching a lot of my peers on music theory. Um, being a pianist, music theory was more natural to me than to maybe the guitarists and singers. And I, I really got a flavor for, for education. And I ended up uh, teaching in post-secondary for a little while. Um, did, you, did you do like a, a PGC or anything? Or you just went, you just, just did this, you just started teaching, you know, without, you know, without any uh, certification or anything? 
at the time I was um, I was teaching post secondary when you didn't need a qualified teacher. Um, post secondary, you mean like like further education or something? Or just yeah, post, yeah, post secondary. So further and higher education. I was actually yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually working teaching music theory uh, at the Academy of Contemporary Music, which is in Guildford, right. and uh, so focusing on contemporary music and teaching music theory and working with with, with students to help develop their understanding of how music works at that kind of grammatical level and after a few years of doing that I, I decided I wanted to go into secondary and so I took the graduate teacher program which is an alternative to PGCE. Right now what, what's that explain what the graduate teacher program is? So the graduate teacher program is a year in school kind of sink or swim experience where you're learning on the job with a few days here and there about once a month where you do a course day maybe on education psychology where you might be looking at behavior um, management systems and models and at the end you submit a huge portfolio of work that you gathered over the year to show that you've been able to cope as a teacher so you start off on a low teacher load and they increase your load throughout the year so by the end of the year, by the end of the year you you're on 75 80 percent teacher load and this is just as a bit happier you're actually getting paid while you're while you're doing this as well you know you have a job Yes, yes, you're um, you're paid as an unqualified teacher. So um, at the time, and it's going back a few years, you know, I was on about fourteen thousand pounds for the year, but yeah. that's that's a while ago now, um, yeah. and and that's great because that kind of gives you that to live on, especially as I'd um, I'd moved into that from having a full time job anyway. So it really helped. And a lot of people were in my situation. It was quite a popular course. Um, I, I think that they only took about one in 10 applicants. Wow. And I finished that. And then I, I went straight into a job as head of music in a school in Dorset. And I really enjoyed that. I did that for a few years. So how did but, you get, so you went straight to head of music? Was, was it quite a small school? Because that's, you know, that's quite a no, sound quite, senior, but I guess if it was a small school, it could. A big school, really. It was um, it was a school that had just um, recently, prior to me um, arriving, uh, had gone from being a, um, a middle school and high school in the the three the middle school system where you have primary, middle, and high, and they combined the middle and high into one senior school. So I think the population of school was about fifteen hundred students, roughly. Um, but they, they took my experience of teaching in secondary education, um, not secondary, post secondary education. Yeah. In, in oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. they took that experience and, and they took the GTP which is a qualified teacher status um, course they, they they took that as you know enabling me to, to handle that position yeah cool and, and what and so what was your job as head of music you were teaching obviously as well but did you, did you have to did you have any kind of management responsibilities as well I, I managed um, the peripatetic teachers um, who, who would come in and uh, and teach various instruments, you know, guitar, drums, brass, woodwind, etc. And then we had another person in the department that I managed as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, you know, it wasn't like, a, I, I can't say it was like managing an English department. It was a very small department because music, music generally tends to have fewer staff. Um, but I also managed um, the GCSE courses that we ran and the A-level courses we ran, and one of those being music technology. And right. one thing I did admit before is that I was very big into music technology when I was working in further education and and also um, being a pianist. 
when I hit about 20, I had a problem with my hand and couldn't play for a year. So I got very much into sequencing and recording. So right. it, it lent me to working more with music technology. So when I moved to this school as head of music, um, introduced the music tech A-level and we worked through that. And that's always been why I've been very into technology and, and certainly edu education technology. I've always been in interested in that kind of innovative side of, of, of learning. Yeah. So did, did, you, did you kind of think, was that where you started to think you wanted to work in, in education technology? Thought maybe you've done as far as you want to go in terms of music teaching and you, you want to try something, try a new challenge? At the time, I suppose when I was working in the UK, that wasn't um, that wasn't at the forefront of my mind. But I was always thinking at the time, like, how can this how can this be done easier? You know, I was working with with students who were making recordings as part of their coursework, and they were having to burn CDs of uh, of their work to provide to me, and I was having to then compile these and burn CDs to send to the exam board as, as examples of coursework for moderation, et cetera. And I was thinking, surely there's got to be a way to do this. And what I wanted at the time, obviously, was like an LMS. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, I'm sure that there were LMSs out there in their kind of proto stages, but uh, I wasn't aware of anything, and our school certainly hadn't employed anything. We had SIMS as a... Uh, as a student information system. Yeah, so I think 80% of UK schools use Sims, don't they? Or English schools anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I was always always trying things. So after after um, Dorset, I moved to Dubai for a year and I moved back because there were um, some some issues with, with going on for me in, in that school. I then took a position in Qatar and I so worked. You, you, went to, you actually went to Dubai, you taught in Dubai for you and then went to Qatar. So did, were you, did you decide you wanted to get into international schools? Because like, did you even know about international schools? Because I've talked about this in the podcast before. I, I didn't even learn about international schools to my 30s. And I'm like, I wish I'd known about it sooner, you know? Oh, and, and the same. So I didn't learn about them until my late 20s. And you know, somebody introduced me to, to international schools and the, the pros and cons, and I did, unfortunately, minimal research, and I got offered a position um, that, that I took, and and this is the caveat with international schools. I think, I think working internationally is a really rich experience and has many, um, many pros, you know, men, the, the culture that you're exposed to, often the packages are very good, um, the students are, are are wonderful to work with, and you learn so much about the culture through working with them. The caveat is that there are some bad schools out there, yeah. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, sometimes you don't you don't realise until you get to the school, and, and that was my experience in Dubai. Now, it wasn't terrible, terrible. It wasn't untenable, but I didn't want to go beyond my first year. Yeah, what what I mean, what are the things to watch? Obviously, you know, we're not going to name a school, but like, what what kind of like what 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 are the bad things that can happen, and what should people, you know, maybe they're taking their first job in international school in Dubai or whatever. What kind of things are, could 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 go bad? You know, any any what any any war stories? For uh, me, in that school, it was the management style, and ironically, the 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 the, the management style was coming from. Uh, UK expats, you know, and yeah. they, they were predominantly the senior leadership team were were um, were UK expats. They'd been abroad themselves for a little while, and I think that they got themselves into 
uh, a mindset of that they can um, they would treat teachers in their school differently to how they would treat the teachers in the school in a UK school. Sure. And there were some unrealistic expectations uh, because of that. But also there are some international schools out there. So I think what you do need to look out for is um, who owns the school overall. Yeah. And if schools are are owned by by companies that aren't really based in education, I would avoid those schools. Sure, because like we were, talk- I was talking on another podcast about the whole thing about for-profit international schools, which is now you know seventy-five percent, I think, of all international schools, depending on how you define it. But you know, a lot of people work for for-profit schools, but they're really happy with you know they actually. It's not like oh, you know, some are, you know, there's a real spectrum. Some are owned by big organizations like Cognito and Nord Anglia. Yeah. Some are owned by a lot are owned by like a local business person, and that can be good or bad. They can be a local business person who's really into education, or they can be someone who just wants to make every every cent of profit out of it. You know. Exactly, and so the, the the school in Dubai again. It, yeah, this is quite common, so it's not going to name the school by giving the context. The school in Dubai um, had been owned by a a building company based there. Yeah, so the, um, the the school was owned by a building company in in Dubai, which was kind of common. You know, there's a lot of building companies in Dubai, and a lot of them um, own schools. Um, primarily for their uh, for their employees children to go to and um and then they also sell spaces to make a profit on that and, and, and there's nothing wrong in that model yeah but um i i moved to dubai at a time where the building industry was uh, was contracting you know yep. in in uh you know, 2000, 2000, 2009, 2010, the building industry in Dubai was contracting because of the of the the world, you know, the credit crunch going on. It, it hit yeah. the Middle East in the same way, and so the 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 school got turned into a cash cow for the building company. Yeah, and for me, that's that's. That was the issue then because it led to a, a a huge change in how the school was going to function you know and it wasn't something that i could entertain you know for, for me as a teacher it put too many of my own um it, you know my own principles as, uh, as what was it what, in what type of things was that in terms of like charging the parents more or just not nickeling diming paying the staff and things or was it was it kind of everything well, yeah, they they did nickel and dime the staff. You know, um, my my position was changed in within two weeks of landing, being told you're not head of music now, you're subject leader of music, which in the UK they're, they're synonymous. And yeah, I was, yeah. Well, what what's the difference? I was, oh, subject leaders don't get their um, their teaching and learning responsibility allowance. Right. So, so that, that was just the, the code. Yeah. That's, I yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's those it's those kind of things. Um, I had no no budget, and, and when I say no budget, like I asked if I could have equipment of about twenty pounds of petty cash to go and buy new guitar strings because we had rusty guitar strings on our guitars in the in the classroom, and they're like, no, no, there's no money. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure a music teacher needs budget. That's that's one of one of all the does you know. We we had like rotten clarinet reeds and things like that. So yeah, I was like, okay, right, I'm I'm out. I'll finish the year. I'll okay. go. 
Yeah. I moved anyway. I don't want to harbor on about negatives. No, it's, it's great that you finished the year out. That, that, that's that's a great. I mean, some people just you know, I know people have broken contract, but it's all. I don't think it's any good. It's always good to finish out the year, you know, and then say sorry. I'm you know, it's not for me. Yeah. So the you know, for for those listening, I think it's just it's it's doing your research. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if a school is owned by one of those larger chains of for-profit schools. They're generally good. I mean, you hear some complaints from people, but you hear complaints from people at, at any school in any country yeah, in the world. You've got to, you've got to, look, you've got to look at all the comments. Yeah. <laughs> when you look yeah. at, and, and and you know, you know, be careful about those people who uh, who are saying very negative things. Some, sometimes they tend to be the outlier. You yeah. know, say like, look at all of the comments. Sure. The if your school is owned by um, by by a private person who works in a, in, in a certain industry, then you need to be cognizant that should that industry collapse or contract heavily, then that school becomes a source of income to them and they will nickel and dime staff, um, reduce sure. budgets on, on any, you know, any kind of OPEX and CAPEX budgets, all initiatives will like any CAPEX in initiatives will be out the window. And so you'd be working in a school then that's just trying to generate money for that person. I, yeah. I, I think that's just the nature of the beast. But unfortunately, if I if I'd worked for that school maybe 10 years earlier, it would have probably been the golden days and I would have loved it. But yeah, I, yeah, definitely. There's a cool. So so, but, so how did you get a job in Qatar then? Did you start looking on, on uh, you know, job sites and go to any job fairs or anything? Yeah, so um, I went through the, uh, the TES, and in the yep. TES, there's, uh, um, there's an international section. And, uh, yeah, I, I went through I knew I liked the Middle East, okay? I, I really like the culture in the, in the Middle East and the way that things work. Um, I, I, obviously, I, I love the fact that there's no income tax. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not going to say that I, I moved out here just for the culture. I do enjoy, I do enjoy the culture, though. But... Um, it, year round, the weather is pretty good. Of course, July and August is very hot, um, and you know some people uh, lament about the heat in the summer a lot. But um, then, when we're in the UK, we lament about the rain. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. It, it it swings and roundabouts. But I've got to say that you know seven eight months of the year, the weather is glorious. That's always a pro. So I wanted to come back to the Middle East, and. I saw a position for a school in um, in Qatar, and it's outside of Doha. Um, I'm not going to give the exact location because yeah, no, no, you don't need to name schools. It's just good to talk about the general stuff, you know. It's the only where well, it's one of the only schools around there, so it would be obvious. <laughs> and I worked there for a few years again, just as a music teacher. I, I wasn't head of music. I had a great experience there. It was a lovely community, a very small. Um, a very small community that was based around the the industry in that area. So I, I had um, a really good time. Um, you know, the Western expats were Western expats were quite tightly knit in terms of like a lot of camaraderie because you know we're working not just abroad together, but in actually quite a remote location as well. Yeah, and a lot of great facilities put on by the company, and they didn't nickel and dime. Even though we weren't in um in a time of of great expansion, you know that there there were there was hefty budgets. There were plans for renewing the school and building new school buildings and things. Yeah. So I did a few years there, but it was a very small school. People don't move, and I wanted to progress. So after three years, 
um, I decided to move into the main city in Qatar. I didn't want to leave Qatar yeah. um, because I, I really actually grew to like it after, after three years. Um, and I was offered a position working for um, a school, a, quite a, a reputable school in the center of Doha. So I made a, made a decision to move. And I moved in uh, 2014, and I, I actually moved to become a theatre manager. So I moved into a position where I'd be like an AV consultant, talking about uh, loud, um, light and sound design, um, you know, bringing in all of those production skills that I developed through um, my work as a musician and teaching um, music technology at mm -hmm. education and second, secondary education level. And then the price of oil went down in 2014. It significantly crashed in 2014. Yeah. And this, this impacted GCC economies, you know, every country. Uh, actually, all of the OPEC countries as well. You know, look, look at what, what's happened in Venezuela since 2014 and sure. so on. GCC is Gulf Cooperation Council, isn't it? That's the Middle East and oil producing yeah. countries. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's the the oil producing countries in in the in the Middle East, and so that naturally led to to budget cuts. Not trying to nickel and dime, but the the, the school I was working for um, re received funding from the government, and all government spending had to be reduced yeah. uh, because we went from what was it like a hundred dollars a barrel to twenty eight dollars a barrel in a matter of a couple of weeks. So. Right. The, their export income was you know, a third of what it was. Yeah, and so naturally we went through a round then of um, of of what they call optimizations in two thousand and fourteen, where they were looking at uh, what staff we can scale back on in terms of positions, not people. It's all about positions. What positions are essential to our school, and which positions can we? Um, we work with that. And they had voluntary redundancies as well at the time. And so we lost a few staff and regrettable, but I think it was something that the school had to go through because yeah. just because of the, the, the difference in the, in the income from the government. So there's no blame to this. It was just a natural part of, of, of our capitalist society, unfortunately. And, uh, um, my boss and his boss both took, uh, voluntary redundancy and their positions were, were, were cut. And then they amalgamated a number of positions into something that looked like a a leader of edtech or an edtech coordinator, for all intents and purposes, like a tech integration coach slash coordinator. And I'd started, or I've been working on this um, masters in education technology that my yeah, boss. Yeah. You already knew the scenario you wanted to move into. Yeah, yeah. So I got really interested in, in the, the learning side of education technology. Actually, through the, the, the first position in Qatar, where I was working on Moodle for the first time, I'd become really interested in educational technologies. I, yep. I kind of forgot to say that about the first I position. Off with, uh, Moodle, yeah, I, was, I was a Moodle administrator for a while as well. So I know Moodle very well. So yeah, I got really into that. And then when, when I moved into this new position, then as the AV guy, you know, I was trying to, you know, I was trying for the first time, I was trying to be more fluid with the way that I was using Google stuff as well, too, because my boss kind of insisted upon that. He was the head of technology. And so when 
their positions were cut and then this new position was created, I applied for it. And yeah, I was already, at, at the time of interview, I was halfway through this master's in, in education technology. And um, I, I really upskilled myself uh, um, as a Google certified educator and the level one, actually at the time it wasn't the level one, level two, it was just the Google certified educator. Yeah, certified trainer, I think, wasn't it originally? Yeah. yeah. And so, so I've done that. So I'd, I'd upskilled myself and I got the position. So 2015, I transitioned from being the, the theater manager to now being um, this ed tech coordinator type position, which oversaw libraries as well, as well as still doing the theater manager position. And so, yeah, I, I, did, I did that and I provided training for staff. You were transitioning to kind of like a more of a management role doing the tech coordination stuff, like. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, everything from um, overseeing training, uh, um, managing subscriptions, um, making recommendations on best pedagogical practices to, uh, to the leadership team, all of those types of things. And also during that first year, um, prior to becoming um, that that new role, um, I, I met yourself and James through the first Google Summit in Qatar, yeah. which I attended. And uh, I won my Google flip-flops, which I still proudly own yeah, uh, yeah. in the demo slam. And I should have won a pair, but I, know, I never managed to get my hands on a pair of those. They're pretty cool. Well, maybe one day you might get a gift from me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for me, that really elevated what, because that, that opened my eyes to what Google could really do in um, in education. So sorry to backtrack, but uh, yeah, yeah so no, first time it really opened my eyes. You know, I was a Google person. I've been using Gmail since uh, like 2006, 2007. Um, been using Google Drive since I had access to it. But not to its potential, you know, you know the, the collaboration and all of the kind of deeper features I wasn't using. Yeah, that's the thing. There's so much in there that, that that's that's the reason we do these events just to let you know let teachers, you know, people working as educators to actually see all the things they can do. Because I, I think unless you have, you know, you don't need to get external trainers in, but I think you need someone in your school or a group of people to help coordinate a community and do the training because then it really levels up everyone in the school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. Um, so, yeah, because it's like that, not knowing what you don't know. Yeah. And for me, that summit really opened up to like, oh, there's this much to it. Okay, and that's what spurred me on to actually go and get myself certified, yeah. and let me get in that new position or part of what led to me. Did, did you find like you know, I'm, I'm a Google certified educator as well? Do you think that actually helped you get that? Do you think? that certification actually helped you get the position or do you think it is useful for people as a career thing? I, I do. I, I do. And some people say, well, oh no, they wouldn't have just chosen you on that, uh, on that Google certified educator certifications. I say, yes, they wouldn't have chosen me purely on that. But if I'm up against other people, we've got very similar, um, we've got very similar experience and qualifications, but I have that uh, that certification and they don't. It's just yeah. one of those things that puts me above and beyond, not necessarily to benchmark my skills, although that's part of it, but also to show that how serious I was about that. Yeah. I've gone out and got myself trained um, and, and taken the time to do that exam. Because, you know, those exams are three hours long. And you know, so, so yeah, the, it's a bit of effort. 
there is there, there's an amount of effort and i think like when people do a degree in a master's it shows the effort that you've put in um sustained sustained period of time of being able to focus and and obtain some something and see it through so as well as benchmarking the skills there is that to it as well sure great sorry Go ahead. and um so i got into my um into my position then um where i was coordinating air tech and then they brought out a new round of um certified educators so i did the level one and level two and uh, push through to doing the certified trainer. Yep. And at that point, that's where I started um, working more closely with apps events and uh, uh, working on the on the boot camps as well. You mentioned in the masters in edtech. Do you think that's something that really helped you? I mean, this, you know, there's a split between people that do do a masters in, in edtech and people who don't in 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 a kind of field. Do you think it do you think it was useful for you in terms of what you learned in terms of getting getting the next job? Yeah, I, I think um, so. So the masters, I'll, I'll be uh, completely honest. It doesn't say masters in in ed tech, but fifty um, percent of my credits were in ed tech courses. So the university don't do that thing where they actually say it's it's you specialised in this. Yep. But by definition, I have. So when I tell people just to simplify things, I say it's a masters in, in ed tech, um, and I, th I think it really did help. Because uh, it's it again, it opened my eyes to um, as, as to a lot lots of things that I didn't know before. So yeah. I, I learned what I didn't know before. Um, it really ingrained in me those tech integration models, which are really for me the, the they underpin all of the cool gadgets and the great software that's out there. It's that tech yeah. integration model, like um, you know. The, the the use of the SAMA model and planning uh, tasks, the the TPAC model, um, and, and so on. The, these models of integration and how they actually lift and or elevate the pedagogy in the classroom. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at your LinkedIn, State University of New York, um, multidisciplinary studies. That, is that that's interesting? So I guess was it a call? Would you recommend it? I mean, can you could you is there a lot of flexibility to what you choose? So could you put some business modules in there and some other stuff? Is yeah, yes. Uh, well, it's great that you actually mentioned that. So I run the program now. Right. So, okay. um, it, it, it's just my life's been very weird, and I've gone from from actually working yeah. that program, and then through the, these weird coincidences and things that have happened in the last couple of years, um, I took over uh, the program about four or five years ago. And you know, people before me left me some great material. Um, and at the, at the time, we actually ran um, five courses um, face to face, and then you were expected to get the other five courses. So you had ten courses, ten three credit courses in total. Uh, you were expected to get those last five courses yourself, though. I took over the program and I made the decision to make the entire program face-to-face -face. we run 10 three credit courses uh, that are planned by me um face-to-face -face in doha right and this year i made the decision to introduce a ed leadership track so there's yeah. now like kind of tracks one planned by me that takes takes them through the ed tech courses and also the the mandatory education courses yeah and the ed leadership track takes them through five ed leadership courses and the mandatory education courses right 
there's two paths to graduation there. So we're currently recruiting for that. And, and I do recommend it. If, if, if I didn't recommend it, I, would, I wouldn't yeah. be running the program at all. But I, I think that I've gone on to see students I've taught myself in, 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 in that program. So my own students go on to leadership positions in our schools. So I'm going to have to backtrack again. I've, yeah. I've, that's the problem. It's a podcast. Yeah. Think about podcasting. You know, whatever you can freestyle. It's cool. So, so since taking that um, ed tech coordinator position in one in in one of the schools of my family of schools, I've moved into um, the the central office now, which is why my position is now district coordinator of twenty first century learning. Yeah. Um, and we have 14 schools. Um, we're always growing. It's a fantastic organisation to work for. And the pro the the master's program is now open to anybody from those from those 14 schools. And I do recommend um, the, the program, as I've seen um, students from previous cohorts that I've taught go on to assistant principal and principal positions in in other schools within our group. Yep. Cool. In, in fact, we we recently had a um and a new initiative where we had to bring a lot of pedagogical leaders from around our schools into a, a, a large meeting. We had about 26 people. And I would say 50% or slightly more of that of those 26 people were previous um, master's students from the cohorts I taught. Yeah. And that's disproportionate in, in terms of the number of people, the percentage of people taking the course, because we have like 1,200 staff. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe like um, 12, so 12, 1,200 staff. So maybe we've had like 3% of staff go through the, through the program and yet to have about 50% being involved in the, pedago you know, the pedagogical leadership discussions is quite, um, you know, I, I, I feel that, that it shows the potential of the program. Sure. Cool. And is, did they do, is it an online, just looking at the website, is it an online program as well that people can do from anywhere in the world? Or is it, is it all like with local partners like, like, like you guys who run it? So there, there, are, there are satellite campuses, which is what I regard myself as um, yeah. in places in the world. They have quite a lot in South America. Um, they have um, a few across Europe, um, several in Asia, in Thailand and China, for, for example. They're even looking at opening one now in, um, in Melbourne. There's a couple in the Middle East. And so if people were to transition when they start the course, they can continue in those other sites. They end up close to one of those sites. Otherwise, they can continue online. Um, I, on, online, I don't think there's an issue with online education. I, I hear a lot of people say, well, on, online learning is not quite like learning face-to-face. -face. And they're right, it isn't. But I don't think it's necessarily less rigorous. I think that online learning is just harder because we're so used to cooperative learning, that socialized environment. And therefore, the onus is on the the lecturer, so that would be myself sometimes, to um, to provide those um, those tasks and facilitate that socialized learning because otherwise it can be, you can feel quite disconnected, uh, and I feel I think that's probably the, the 
the biggest downside to any of the online courses. It relies on having a lecturer who puts the effort into having the class kind of socialize and collaborate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing a master's level program now and it was blended. We did it in person uh, and then some online. And honestly, the in-person was great. The online's has, it's been pretty rubbish to be honest. Like it's, there's just a bunch of tasks. You, you, you've got access to a tutor if you need help, but you know, you get an email back and maybe you can harass them and get them on a WhatsApp call, you know, but there's no, there, there is some, you know, the students we've all got together, but it's all just been organized by ourselves. You know, we've just like, you know, done our own zoom chats or meet chats, but yeah, but, um, that, look, really interesting. Just kind of finish things off. I'm just keen just to talk quickly about living in Qatar as a, as a, as a foreign teacher. Um, obviously a lot of people are interested in it. Yeah. I guess start from the point of view, like, what's it like, for example, I'm thinking like someone like myself has got children, like what's it like as a, as a family? Like, is, is it, is it, is it a good location for people? And then what's it like, you know, for, for single people as well? I, I think fantastic for families. I've got to say, um, I, I don't have a family myself, so it's hard to um, comment um, from a personal point of view on this. But from talking to friends and um, from, from seeing how, how they engage in the culture there, see, Arabic culture is very family centric. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is historical, but it's still true to this day. Uh, and I think that the the environment there really lends itself to to people with families. It's a very, it's the safest place I've ever lived in the world. I've got to say, yeah. you know, you, you don't feel the need to lock your front door or even lock your car. There's, um, there's like zero crime. Uh, you, when, when I drive to see friends on the, on the QF, uh, on the, the housing lots that are provided by our company, um, you know, you, you have children there playing out at night and, you know, in the, in the lots. They, they can yeah. play in the roads until a car comes and they get out of the way. You know, like it used to be when we were growing up yeah. um, in the UK, you know, on a quiet road and the car will come along, you get out of the way. And, you know, the, the kids all grow up in this community with, with kids around them of their own age. And yeah. Is it like kind of sporting areas and things for sporting clubs and things for, in the, for the kids in these areas? We, we have tons of facilities. Um, you know, and this go, this is true for um, for most companies in Qatar that they have a lot of amenities for employees. Yeah, it's, it's true for the first organisation I worked for when I first came to Qatar. That you know, in in that compound, they had their own cinema. They had multiple recreation centres with gyms and swimming pools and things. And um, so, it, yeah, it is great for uh, it is great for families. Um, that's not to say it's it's bad for um, for singles and couples. Um, there are other things to do, but I think the families really have the opportunity to get into the culture more because of it being so family centric. Do, do you kind of have to live in one of these compounds or, or is that, do all the foreigners live in certain areas or can you just live wherever you want if you wanted uh, to? It, it, it varies from company to company and sometimes it also varies on positions. So some positions might be given the opportunity to take an allowance and move off of the compound um, while other positions won't um won't be given that opportunity uh and the allowance that you're given will sometimes depend upon your position as well yeah. so a, a higher position might be given a higher ha housing allowance as an example most people um, are quite happy living on the compounds to be honest because especially with the families you're going to find that there's a lot of other families there whereas if you move off into your own accommodation um, you might be a family isolated amongst yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, 
so yeah that, that to answer that question um there is choice but it is it's dependent upon company and position sometimes yeah. you don't have that choice in terms of um of where people maybe like whether the teachers all kind of live together if you're not living on the compound um, a lot of teachers um, move into um, a few different areas um, so in, in Qatar the pearl is very uh, very popular it's um, uh, you know it's a very vibrant place it looks a little bit like Venice in places and so on it's, it's very um, it's a very westernized look I suppose and, and um, some westerners gravitate um, towards um, oh, wow. the- online, it's pretty impressive it's all a bunch of sort of like high-rise buildings around a kind of yeah. lake i guess or like a peninsula it's really impressive looking and you get beach access as part of that as well so that's that's the big draw there um however the price does reflect um at the, the location um yeah. some families um some, some families have actually moved out now to uh, opposite the Mall of Qatar, there's a brand new compound opposite that called Aurene Gardens. Uh, and there's lots of villas there that are reasonably priced. So you get a lot more space then for your money, but you don't have the beach access. But, you know, you have like a um, a backyard and, and so on. Right. So they, they, they cluster a little bit, I suppose, but people also want to live closer to work. So there is a bit of a spread, but you might find pockets of where people definitely want to live. Yeah. And how would you like, I mean, I guess... The place people probably know more from having visited areas is UAE, like Dubai and Abu Dhabi. How would you compare the two if you were going to make a comparison in terms of living? What are the kind of differences? Um, I would say in Dubai, there's a lot more. Um, there's a lot more focus on the on the single lifestyle. You know, yeah. they have a lot more kind of like nightclubs, and they have these kind of. Um, uh, there's a place called Zero Gravity, for instance, which is this kind of outdoor beach bar that there's kind of brunches and everyone's kind of you know they're ha- having their drinks poolside and beachside yep. and everyone's in bikinis and everyone looks like a supermodel and <laughs> that kind of stuff so it's a very, that, that that's a lot more like um like the single lifestyle i, I suppose yeah. uh, and there's a lot more that caters if you if you love going out clubbing and and you know being in that very busy single lifestyle like that then you know dubai really caters for that yeah there are things in in Doha uh, that do cater for that kind of lifestyle, but there, there's there's fewer options because Fewer's I don't I, I don't think it's the uh, you know I don't think Qatar are trying to attract that um, that type of lifestyle. Sure, there's options. I mean, we put on some some great events here. We've had Ed Sheeran play here. We have our we have brunches as well. We have some outdoor bars and. Um, you know, like there's a place called the Backyard, which is um, part of the Sheraton Hotel. And in the cooler months, they have great bands come and play and there's bars out there. So we do have have things for that, but it's just, it's not like, it doesn't consume the culture here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah I've, I've heard similar things, people saying it is. People have always said it's good for families, actually. That's that's one thing that seems universal. People say it's if you go with, with kids, it's, it's, you, you'll have a good lifestyle there. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's good for families. And like I say, I mean, personally, you know, being, being a sing, single myself at the moment um, and having single friends, you know, we love it there. We, we really, yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose what um, the difference, to really answer the difference between Dubai, now Dubai is different to Abu Dhabi. But to, to answer the difference between Dubai and Doha would be that I think in Dubai, that kind of 
that lifestyle has consumed the city. You know, that's what the city's kind of become about. Sure. From, you know, I have friends who still live there and, you know, the conversation's always going on about going to beach bars, going here. Whereas in Qatar, you know, it hasn't consumed the culture. Yeah. You know, it's been kind of, it's there, but it's been kind of kept, you know, not hidden. It's not hidden, but it's, it's, it's been restricted to certain, to, to certain places. Um, and, and, and so on. We have more opportunity for like more high culture stuff as well. Like a lot of theater. Um, we have the Qatar Philharmonic Orchestra who are just amazing. And, uh, their season from September normally to about May, they, yeah. they're playing all the time until there's, um, opportunities to see them. They even do free concerts as part of the Qatar National Library or um, within the Museum of Islamic Art. We have a lot of museums and art galleries. So there's a lot of high culture in, in Doha. And, yeah, and the World Cup, the Football World Cup's coming up, is it? I don't know if that's, yeah. that's I, keep, I keep hearing different stories about that. They just opened um, another, well, they just announced that another stadium is ready, uh, the Education City Stadium. So that's kind of near where, near where I work. Uh, it's a huge stadium. And so that's ready, and they'll probably be putting on some matches there once the um, once the football season starts. Uh, I hear that they're going to allow sports events from September the first, um, with okay, cool. the lockdown um, restrictions easing in Doha. Yeah, Dan, look, I think that's probably a good place to to finish. That really interesting to hear about all the stuff you've done. You've definitely done done a lot. I didn't know about, so it's, that's a great thing about a podcast. You know, people you know, you can find out more about. But uh, thanks again. And uh, where should people find you online? You've got like LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff. I can put links. Yeah, um, the best one is probably Twitter. So it's just at Dan Pardy. Yep. So, uh, name. Yeah, just uh, I've got, even got my own name now. I was real, real lucky. Sounds good. Dan, thanks very much. Okay. Take care, Dan.